0: Hello. Hello, coming through, how are we all doing? <laughs> Good. How amazing was that time of praise? Just, I just, <laughs> you get a bit nervous before preaching sometimes, that just kind of removes it all when you just meet with God in such a powerful way. I just thought it was brilliant, just refocusing our minds on the gospel, which is exactly what we're going to do today. If you're new, um, we've been going through a series on the book of Galatians called Jesus is Enough, um, and basically just looking through that particular letter in the New Testament and seeing what it can teach to us. Now, if you've been around for the whole series, you may start getting tired of the fact that we have to summarise the background to the book every single time. It's important to do that, so I'm still going to do that, but I think I just, I just want to do it from a slightly different angle today, just to kind of keep things fresh and help you guys to understand it a little bit better, um, is to think about it from the perspective of Paul. And uh, there's a brilliant illustration that I found at the beginning of a little commentary by a guy called Tom Wright on Galatians, which I thought just fantastically summarised how Paul would be feeling when he... Found out about what was going on in Galatia. Okay? So, you need, basically, you need to imagine that you are a missionary into apartheid South Africa. So, maybe 15 or so years ago when there was still um, huge um, racial discrimination going on and the whole idea of white supremacy and everything. And you are, you're a missionary, you're sent into that context, and your aim is to bring reconciliation between black people and white people who, as, uh, at the time, were in huge enmity against each other. And Tom Wright says imagine that you are doing that, you're working at at that and as the kind of climax of your work out there, what you do is you build a school where white kids and black kids are all allowed to learn in the same class on the same basis, on the basis of being a human rather than on the basis of their skin colour and imagine you you create that school, you build that school and you kickstart the school and that's kind of the climax of your mission out there and then you go off somewhere else because you've been called uh, to another country Imagine that a few months later you get a letter uh, telling you that some people have come into the school and they've started separating the white kids from the black kids and they've actually built a huge wall down the middle of the school and have said, okay, black kids, you're allowed in this part of the school, white kids, you're allowed on that part of the school because your education is going to be on the basis of your skin colour. Imagine how you would feel in that situation, and you probably get a sense of how Paul feels when he hears about what's going on in Galatia. Because what's going on in Galatia is Paul had preached the gospel to a group of churches who um, are predominantly made up of people who aren't Jewish. And he has preached the gospel that we were singing about earlier. That amazing gospel of grace and f- through faith in Christ Jesus. It's nothing that you earn. It's not on the basis of being a Jew or, a, or whatever you want It's all a free gift of God's, and he'd proclaimed that gospel to them, and he'd moved on. And what had happened is a few months later, some people, just like in the um, analogy, some people had come in and had basically started saying, actually, to be part of God's people, you need to become Jewish. And so what had happened is the, the, the Gentile Galatians were starting to think, okay, well, we need to become Jewish. And Paul heard about that, and he said, that completely undermines my whole mission. That undermines the very message of the gospel, which is that actually you are part of God's people on the basis of faith in Jesus and nothing else. And just imagine how you would feel if you were that missionary into South Africa, hearing that letter. And that's how Paul would have felt, even more so though, because he's dealing with something which is of just even higher significance than racism, even though it actually feeds into all of that. So that's what's going on in Galatians. We've been looking through the letter, we've been looking at um, a lot of talk about the law. How does the Jewish law relate to faith? And Paul's just been hammering home the truth. It's by faith, by trusting, you may kind of think the word faith gets... Like thrown around a lot what does it actually mean? it means trusting he says it's by trusting in Jesus that you actually become part of God's people not by any works of the law not by circumcision not by obeying particular dietary laws or anything it's grace through faith in Jesus and Paul is hammering home that truth And today we're going to look at a passage that is a a little bit odd, I tend to get given the slightly odd passages, I think that's just the way it's worked out, Um, and the title, I kid you not, this is what Steph gave me, I didn't make this up, is Who's Your Mummy? Um, So that will become clear in a little bit, so the question really we're asking today is Who's Your Mummy? And you may think that's a really weird title. It'll make sense in a little bit once we've, we've read what's going on. Uh, so we're going to be reading from Galatians 4, verses 21 to 31. The words are going to appear up on the screen if you don't have your Bible. But if you want to follow along, that's where, we, that's where we're going to be. So Galatians 4, verse 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise." now this may be interpreted allegorically these women are two covenants one is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia she corresponds to present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother, for it is written rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear break forth and cry aloud you who are not in labour, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit so also it is now but what does the scripture say cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman so brothers we are not children of the slave but of the free woman okay a bit weird if you read the bible if you read the bible kind of in any significant amount you'll notice there are lots of different kinds of writing throughout the Bible and if you just flatten them all into one kind of writing you're going to end up with some really weird stuff So if you've been reading, for example, Revelation and you get to chapter 12 and you think, ah, okay, one day there's going to be a literal dragon who's going to stand in front of a woman who's given birth to try and swallow the child when it comes out, but the child is going to go up to heaven and then the dragon's going to get really annoyed and vomit water after the woman and is going to try and catch her. And you're going to be looking around for this dragon that's going to appear and think, oh my goodness, I don't want it caught by the water. But if you don't understand actually its imagery... You're not going to interpret it correctly. And what Paul does here is he uses a particular kind of literary writing, which is called an allegory. Now, anyone here done A-level literature or GCSE literature? Yeah? So, can anyone tell me what an allegory is? Anyone want to venture? Crickets. Okay. Anyone? Story with a meaning. Story with a meaning? Nearly? Two levels? Many levels. Many levels. Okay, you kind of, I think, yeah, not quite, we're not quite getting it. An allegory is basically when you take a story with actual characters and the things in the story, that are real life things, represent an idea. So, uh, for example, um, anyone here know the the story of the hungry caterpillar? The very hungry caterpillar? Anyone ever read that as a child? Okay, for those of you who don't know, it's a story of a very hungry caterpillar who on Monday eats an apple and is still hungry. On Tuesday he eats two pears I think and is still hungry. And then on Wednesday he ends up eating three cakes and so on and so on and in the end he turns up into a turns into a butterfly fairly predictably. Now that's a straightforward story but I read on internet that you can actually take that as an allegory. Okay? That actually it means it's it's actually a story that's talking about an idea and what it's talking about is basically greed and consumerism and capitalism. And so what happens is <laughs> I kid you not. The caterpillar eats an apple on the first day and it's kind of the beginnings of consumerism. And then on the second day he wants more, he's still greedy. And then on the third day, if you've noticed, he stops eating natural products and moves on to things like cake. <laughs> which is that actually he moves from things that he needs, goes on to things that he needs but even takes more of it, and then moves on to something he doesn't really need and keeps, come on, keeps come on, uh, just eating and eating. Can you see that we've taken that story in a way that's not literal anymore? We've represented an idea by putting it on um, a particular character in a story Okay, uh, other example can any, any people think of, of things or animals that represent a particular concept Why now? sorry? Wise owl. wise owl, yes owl. <laughs> sorry Dave Smith thinks the way I say owl is very funny <laughs> I'm being really careful, apparently I say owl, um, yes a wise owl, um, so owl can represent wisdom, that is not the right animal to choose Dave Mance okay, any, any other animals before a sly fox, so foxes there we go, foxes can represent kind of cunningness or wisdom, anything else? what about an animal that represents strength a lion. a lion, there we go. A lion will represent strength now the the lion itself is not strength, but it represents something and that 's what paul 's doing here he 's taking a story, a literal story that happened and he 's saying okay we 're going to learn through this story about how God works by saying that particular characters are particular concepts or particular ideas. So that's what he's doing here. And he is taking a story from the Old Testament that you can read about in Genesis 12 to 21, which is the story of Sarah and Hagar. Now some of you may be very familiar with this. Some of you may have heard me reading the Bible passage and thought, hmm, that rings bells. Some of you may have thought, I've never heard of that in my life. So I'm just going to quickly run through what the story is. Now I generally try and get people to come and act stuff out but since this story involves giving birth multiple times I just I don't think I'd ever be able to live that down if I got people to come and act stuff out at the front so I'll just run through it and there will be people coming up later on there will be some some visual stuff but basically Abraham we've heard about Abraham a lot in Galatians okay he's a big deal he is the person to whom God appears in about 2000 BC and says I'm going to bless you and through your offspring all of the nations are going to be blessed so through your children and ultimately a Messiah who's going to come through your children, all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And so amongst other things, what God promises to Abraham is a child. Okay, Now Abraham is 75 years old when God appears to him. And he has a wife who um, is about, at the time would have been about 65 who is well beyond the age of childbearing. For those of you who know your biology, that do, you don't really have kids when you're 65. Add to that the fact she's never had any children, because she's a barren woman. Okay? She can't have kids, she's well beyond the, the age of having kids. And God says, I'm going to give you a child, and through him, all of the nations, are going to ultimately the, the people, are going to come through him that are going to bless all of the nations. Okay? So God appears to Abraham and says that. Now about 11 years later, God reappears again and says, you're going to have a son. And Sarah, who is Abraham's wife, is in a tent at that point when God appears to Abraham and hears God say, you're going to have a son through Sarah and she laughs. She just says, absolute nonsense. I'm about 80, like I'm 85 or so. I am well beyond the age of childbearing. She laughs and God turns around and says, Sarah, why are you laughing? And Sarah thinks, oh dear, God's heard me. And God says, no, you're actually going to have a son. And what happens after is Sarah thinks, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to manipulate the promise slightly. Because I just can't see it happening. Imagine if you're given a promise by God and 15 years later a promise that's impossible to be fulfilled has still not happened. Sarah's saying, "Okay, we must have got it wrong. God probably wants us to have a child, but through a natural way. It's just not going to happen through me. So I've got a, a maidservant, I've got a slave um, woman who is called Hagar. And Abraham, you can sleep with her, and then the child that she bears is going to be yours. So Abraham sleeps with, with Hagar and ends up, bear, and Hagar ends up bearing a child who's called Ishmael. Have anyone heard of Ishmael? all heard of Ishmael? Yeah, yeah? all good." But what happens is that actually God then ends up giving a son to Abraham through Sarah. Okay, so you've got Sarah saying, actually we need to manipulate things so that God's promise can come about. And they end up having a kid. But God actually says, no, no, the way I intended it to happen was that I would make something impossible actually happen. And Sarah ends up having a child when she's 90, which is pretty insane. And what happens after that is that actually Ishmael, who um, is about 15, at the, uh, when, when Isaac's born, ends up mocking Isaac. And Sarah says, I can't deal with this anymore. You need to chuck this slave woman away, because her son is not going to inherit with my son. And Abraham's a bit saddened by this, but he decides, OK, we're going to get rid of the slave woman, because God's told me he's going to protect her. And they go off, and, they, and Ishmael ends up becoming what would now be known as the Arab nation, and that, that kind of part of the world and so that's the story that Paul's talking about so we've got two main female characters one is Sarah, who is the free woman who's Abraham's wife, who is barren and is well beyond the age of of childbearing and we've got Hagar who is a slave woman and she can bear children and those are the two main characters Okay. so what we're going to do is we are going to look at what Paul says about these two particular characters because Paul says, okay, here's the story now I'm going to look at this story and see us what it talks what it teaches us, not just about how God dealt with that particular situation but what it teaches us about how God deals with people in general Okay, so I'm going to ask um, Esther KB and Lauren Pilgrim if they can come up and help me out uh, for this for a little bit um, so if we can give them a round of applause that would be cool okay right, if uh, Lauren you can come this side and Esther you can stay over there Okay, have you ever heard the saying, like father, like son? Yeah, Yeah, of course you have. We tend to inherit a lot of stuff from our parents, don't we? In terms of, so for example, I am the son of Paul Hater. Which, as a natural result of being the son of Paul Hater, I happen to have a nose that is slightly larger than the average <laughs> nose. That's just part of being your father's son. You inherit physical attributes from your parents, but you actually also inherit kind of personality or character attributes. And I think a great example of this, and I don't want to embarrass them, would be someone like Adam or Hannah Utting. Um, because many of you will have known Adam and Hannah for for years before their parents actually joined the church and I think Adam and Hannah have just always been a real kind of example to me in terms of their heart for the, for the lost and for the outcast and to see God really reach out to those kind of people and just really like a real passion for that now when their parents joined I noticed that there was something that, there's something that you see in their parents that also you see in their kids because if you've spent any time with Gordon and Sally you will know that they also have a massive heart to see the lost reached and the, the outcast reached and so even though it's from God ultimately there's a sense in which Adam and Hannah have inherited something from their parents and that's even more true in the ancient world because in the ancient world if your mum or if your, your dad particularly was a slave you would be born as a slave if your Dad and your mum were free, you would be born free. If your dad was a fisherman, you'd end up becoming a fisherman. If your dad was, I don't know, a farmer, you would become a farmer. That's just what happened. Because they weren't as it wasn't the individualistic kind of culture in those days. You became what your parents were. And what Paul's saying here basically is, who's your mummy? Depending on which of these two women allegorically speaking you are a child of, that is going to define the way you live and that 's going to define kind of particular characteristics about you okay so Paul says these two women so let 's read we 'll following Yeah. all good it 's hot, I know, but we 'll um, keep engaging okay so um, verse. 20, so verse 24 he says now this may be interpreted allegorically. Okay, So we're going to say okay, here's a story and we're going to look at ideas that this story represents. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai okay, and that corresponds to Hagar which is going to be uh, Lauren here. Now anyone know anything important that happened at Sinai in the Bible? Ten Commandments. Yep, giving of the Mosaic Law. So you might have heard of it as the the Torah. That was given in about 1500 BC in a mountain in Arabia to God's people, Israel. So I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods apart from me, etc, etc. That's the Mosaic Law and that was given on Mount Sinai. So Paul is saying Hagar, or here represented by Lauren, represents that particular covenant. Okay, and by implication, although Paul doesn't specify it, this particular covenant here, represented by Esther, is going to be the the new covenant in Jesus, which is ultimately a fulfillment of the old covenant. Okay, now Lauren is going to represent the slave woman, and I thought, what a better way to represent someone who is not free than to make some paper chains. So if you can kind of like hold them, and you need to look slightly sad, because there we go, fantastic acting. And I thought, okay, so Esther is a free woman, or she's representing Sarah, and I thought, what is it that represents freedom? Because we're talking about allegories. So I typed freedom into Google Images, and lo and behold, the Statue of Liberty came up, which I thought, good way. So you're going to have to wear the hat of the Statue of Liberty... and hold this up until your arm gets tired basically and you look happy because you are free there we go <laughs> okay so we have these two covenants and what Paul does is he says depending on in, depending on whether you are a child of Hagar or a child of Sarah, remember this is an allegory it's not, like, not literally Hagar's children or Sarah's children but depending on whether you are Hagar's child or Sarah's child you will have particular characteristics about your life Okay, so we're just going to look. We're going to look at a couple of contrasts between the children of the slave woman and the children of the free woman that Paul that Paul goes into here. And first of all, we need to figure out who are the children of the slave woman and who are the children of the free woman. And um, so Paul tells us in verse um, twenty-five. So now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So Hagar. And this particular covenant is going to correspond, in Paul's time, to basically ethnic Israel who hadn't accepted Jesus as the Messiah. That's who he means represented by, by Hagar. Now you may think, what relevance does that have to us? Well, by implication, Hagar represents anyone who is relying on something external or on something in and of themselves to qualify them before God. Because that's what the Jews were doing at the time. They said, okay, we are, if we are male, we are circumcised and we obey particular laws and that sets us apart from other people and that makes us God's people. And Paul's saying, okay, anyone who lives in that kind of way is going to be a child of Hagar in this particular story. Okay, And the children of Sarah are going to be those who are free. So Paul says um, she represents the Jerusalem above, which is kind of a, is a way in the Bible of talking of God's true people. And we know throughout Galatians that God's true people are those who have put their trust in Jesus the Messiah. So whether they are Jew or Gentile, Sarah's children, or Esther in this case, are going to be the, those who have put their trust in Jesus. Okay. So we're going to look at two contrasts that Paul gives us. And the first of them is the way that the children are actually born in the first case. So verse 23... If we've got it there. Okay. Paul says, now the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. If you are not in Christ, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, your birth was a natural birth. Okay? There's not remember the story: Hagar ends up sleeping with Abraham and conceives naturally. And although all kind of every child is a, is a miracle in a sense. That's just the way it happens. It's a natural birth. If you are someone who is defining yourself um, by what you do or is defining your status before God by what you do or by what you achieve or by a particular way of dressing or a particular set of rules, then actually Paul would say you were born according to the flesh, naturally. Whereas Paul says, whereas, um, he says, now the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. So remember, Abraham and Sarah, they couldn't have children. So God promised to Abraham you're going to have a child, and Sarah didn't believe it, but at the age of 90, she conceived a child. Now, I think we can all agree that's miraculous. 90-year-old women, to be honest, to get to 90 is hard enough, but 90-year-old women do not have kids. That's just not the way that nature works. So if you are here in this camp, if, you are, if you've been born again, if you've put on Christ, if you're in Christ, Paul says you are born according to promise, you're born supernaturally. So yes, you were born naturally by your parents, but as Jesus says in the Gospel, you must be born again. And if you're in this particular camp, you've been born supernaturally, you've been as a, born ultimately as a result of the promise that was made to Abraham. That's why Paul says you're born according to the promise. Because he said to Abraham, all of your offspring are going to be blessed. So if you're in this camp, you are born supernaturally. So that's the first contrast, the way you're born. And the second contrast, which is actually the thing that Paul really majors on here, is that the children of this particular woman... So if we look in verse 25 to 26, it says, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above... Is free and she is our mother. The second contrast is that if you are a child of Hagar, if you are someone who is putting your confidence in anything else but Jesus in order to qualify you as part of God's people, then you are in slavery. Now you might think, how does that work? Well, in Paul's day, this would have been a horrific thing to say. Because as far as the Jews were concerned, they were not enslaved. They may have been enslaved to the Romans physically, but they did not think that they were enslaved to their law. They did not think they were enslaved to the kinds of things that Paul says they're enslaved to. But actually, by trying to set up your own righteousness before God, by trying to define yourself as part of God's people by particular laws that you obey, what you're actually doing is you're becoming a slave of the thing that you're trying to do. Because I've been reading Deuteronomy a little bit in my kind of devotional times at the moment, and it's, just, it's, it's this interesting mix of, guys, you're my people, you shall do this. And you're a stiff-necked people, you're not going to do this. I know you're not going to do this, and so you're going to get punished for it. It's this weird mix of God gives the law to his people and says, you need to do this. And then he says, but I know you're not able to do it. It's like a few weeks ago I preached and talked about trying to be justified by the law or by your own efforts was like trying to resuscitate someone with a pair of books instead of a defibrillator. What it does is it shows you, here's what it looks like to be my people, but it doesn't give you the power to do it. That's what the law does, and by extension, that is what any kind of system where you set up your own merit before God works. It, It makes you a slave it makes you a slave to sin. It makes you a slave to that particular system. And there is no way that you can make your way to God by doing that. And the sad truth is you may not even realise you're in that. You may be here today and you don't know Jesus. And you may not even realise that you're actually enslaved to something. Whether that's your appearance, whether that's a particular celebrity that you, you really like, whether it's a particular habit that you just can't break free from but you don't see the problem... And just like the Jews in Paul's day, you may not have realised that you're actually enslaved to something. But the amazing truth is that the gospel brings freedom and the gospel frees us from slavery, as we were singing earlier. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God should die for me? My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. That's what the gospel does, but we'll get onto that in a second, getting ahead of myself. So if you are defined by, here's what I do, here's what here is my righteousness, God. Now you must accept me. You're actually a slave of that. However, if you are, um, as Paul says here, he says, But our, the, the Jerusalem above in verse 26 is free, and she is our mother. And by implication, her children are free as well. If you're in Christ, you are not enslaved to all of the things that those who are trying to set up their own righteousness are. You have been freed from that. Now we need to talk a little bit about freedom because if you were to ask someone, just on the street, go outside and ask someone and say what do you think freedom is, the chances are they would give you an answer, which they wouldn't say it like this, but they would basically give you an answer which is another way of describing anarchy. They would say freedom is no limits whatsoever, you're allowed to do whatever you want, absolutely no limits. So kind of, if you want to think of a picture, it's a little bit like a little child who is allowed to eat as much chocolate and as many biscuits and as many sweets as he can. And most people in our world think like that. They think freedom is the ability to do whatever you want and no one can stop you. But actually in the ancient world and in the Bible that's not the way people thought about freedom. The way people thought about freedom in the Bible was God has created you to be something and freedom is being free from everything that stops you becoming what God has created you to be. So as a human you were created in the image of God. You were created to reflect him and slavery is not being able to reflect him. Freedom is being set free from slavery so that you can be what you were created to be. Not so that you can go off and sleep with your girlfriend and do whatever you want, but so that you can actually be the very thing God created you to be. And that's what freedom is in the Bible. It's more like, instead of a child being allowed to eat as many cookies and sweets as he wants, it's more like a bird being trapped in a cage and being set free. Because the bird's designed to fly. A kid is not designed to eat as many sweets and chocolate as possible. Whereas a bird is designed to fly, and as you let it out of the cage, you are letting it fulfil the very thing that it was created to be. There's a... Really, some of you may know this little poem by... um, It's usually attributed to a guy called John Bunyan, which goes along the following lines. It says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Much better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings run John run the law commands the law commands a load of stuff it says you must do this as part of my people this is what my people look like do this but it gives us it doesn't give us the ability to do it it gives us neither feet nor hands so imagine saying to someone who's had their legs amputated come on run run come on you can shout as much as you want it's not going to happen that's what the law does the law is not bad in and of itself it's perfect but actually because of the state we're in it's like someone's shouting to us and saying you must run even though you have no legs much better news the gospel brings it bids us fly and gives us wings so you've got the law saying you must do this come on do this, come on live up to the standards of my people and the gospel says actually you were created for something even bigger than what the law commands you to do I mean you just read, you read the gospels, the law says you shall not commit adultery Jesus says Actually, you were designed so that it's not just that you don't commit adultery physically. You were designed so that your mind is kept free, from, kept free from sexual impurity. Jesus ups the bar. The gospel says fly, but the good news is that the gospel gives us wings. Because actually, as you give your life to Jesus, as you say, Jesus, I'm all yours, what he does is he fills you with his spirit and he enables you to live the life where you can actually fly. You can become everything you were made to be. And we're going to see a bit about that over the next two weeks when um, Ollie and Tom are going to talk a bit more. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Those are the two contrasts that Paul gives us. So the children of the slave woman are born naturally. The children of the free woman are born according to the promise. And the children of the slave woman are enslaved. They are enslaved to sin. They are enslaved to whatever system they put up. And And the children of the free woman are actually set free from that so they can become everything they were created to be and then what Paul does is he bursts into this amazing, amazing song so let's, let's just read verse 26 to 27 but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother for it is written rejoice, O barren one who does not bear break forth and cry aloud you who are not in labour for the children of the desolate one will be more than, tho- than those of the one who has a husband anyone ever heard that verse before? it's fairly well known sing aloud, O barren one who does not bear break forth into singing it's just one of, the, it's one of those amazing, well-known passages. Isaiah 54 comes immediately after Isaiah 53, all about the suffering of Jesus. And as a result of that, it says, Break forth into singing, barren woman who has never born, because your children are going to be more than the children of the desolate, of the, sorry, the children of the desolate one are going to be more than the children of her who's free. We've, we all know, well, a lot of us will know that. Have you ever thought about how ridiculous and probably offensive it would be to say that to a barren woman? if it wasn't so if it wasn't bound up emotionally with so much pain it would be laughable so if you just like I, I, I mean i i have not had at all the experience of not being able to like have have kids but i from what i'm told it is one of the most intensely difficult and painful pastoral situations you can deal with if you are talking to a couple who can't have kids and you say to them, Rejoice, old oh barren one, who has not who has not born, because your children are going to be more than the woman over there who's got a big family. If it wasn't so emotionally difficult, it would be laughable. It's like it's like saying to a paralysed person, Come on, run, because you will win more medals in the next Olympics than Mo Farah. It's just laughable, it's ridiculous. But you know what? That's the way God works. The way God works is he says I'm going to take a situation that is utterly utterly impossible. I'm going to take a woman who cannot bear, who cannot have children and who's 90, who is about 40 years beyond the age of bearing children. And I'm going to get I'm going to give her a child. That's how God works. God works that way he takes impossible things and he makes them possible. There's a, there was a woman in the, in the church in the, um, that my dad helps to lead in France um, called Christelle, and she um, uh, and, her, and her husband were just, just could not have children. And it was really, really painful. And so the, what, what happened is the church prayed for her and said, God, would you allow Christelle to be able to have children, please? And it, it was a painful situation, but the church kept praying. Now, a few years after... She needed to have an operation on her knees. Her knees were just absolutely like, uh, I don't know what had happened to them. But she needed crutches to walk around. She was waiting to have an operation. And the church again prayed for her. And she is now able to walk with no crutches. And she's been to the doctor. And the doctor's like, this is really weird because your knee is still completely like, all mashed up. But you're now able to walk with crutches. That doesn't make sense. Now that's amazing in and of itself. Do you want to know who prayed for her to be healed? It was her five-year-old son. Her five-year-old son prayed for this woman to be healed and her knees got better. God provided a child for these people. Sing, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labour. God takes situations. I mean, we have got, I'm sure we have got so many stories here of how God has taken impossible situations and has brought something out of it. And God does that and God does it par excellence in the gospel. If you think about the gospel, the gospel is the story of the most ludicrous, ridiculous, shameful thing ever happening. Okay, if you read, read I, if, you could, if you could be transported back into ancient Rome, you would probably not think about the cross in the same way. We think cross, we think, yay, yeah, Jesus, amazing. You say the word cross in the, in fact, you wouldn't say the word cross in the first century. You, it, wouldn't even, it wouldn't be upon your lips. It was such a shameful, degrading form of death. And what Paul does in, in, in 1 Corinthians, he says the message of the cross is folly to the world. It's like saying to a barren woman, you're going to have more kids than that, that big family over there. It's like saying to a paralysed person, you're going to win more medals in the Olympics. It's laughable. It is shameful. Paul says the message of the cross, the idea of Jesus coming and dying on a cross, being shamed and beaten and tortured, is utter folly to the world. We illustrated this in kids work a few weeks ago um, and what we did is we said there are two kinds of people in, at the time Paul was writing. You have Jewish people and you've got Greek people and so we've got two kids at the front, to be um, one to be a Jew and one to be Greek. I can't remember how we dressed the Jewish person up but we, we gave the Greek person a long beard so he could be like a philosopher and we said here are the two different ways that the people in Paul's world would react to the idea that the Messiah was actually a crucified person so if you said to a Jewish person the Messiah was crucified they would, they would say you are lying that they would be offended they say that is not possible if you were to ask, tell the Greek person the saviour of the world has been crucified what we got is we got the kid to roll on the ground laughing because it is utterly, utterly ridiculous but I am so glad that God chose the fo- foolishness of the cross to show his power. God said, I'm gonna, I am going to work in such a way that all of the wise people and philosophers of the world are going to look on and say, what a ridiculous idea. A barren woman bearing, seriously. A, a crucified Messiah. And I am going to save people through that. Because that's the way I work as God. That is what I do. And as a result of that, if you are in Christ, if you turn to Jesus, you can be free. You can be set free from all of that. And that's exactly what's happened to you. If you've been born again, something impossible has happened to you. Yeah, I said that the birth that we had was natural. If you're in this camp, it is supernatural. There is no way that you could be reconciled to God if God hadn't done something in your life. And we've been set free from everything that held us back. We've been completely set free from that particular way of thinking okay thanks guys you can go back to your seat thanks so much for standing there you know what well, you can keep the decorations if you want as well okay right um, actually you know what well, let's I think actually what, what would be great is actually if we could respond I think there's a, there's a bit more I could say but I think it's, it's hot and I think actually I want us to I want us to respond to this amazing message of God setting us free of God completely liberating us. So if um, Alice and Dave and Foxy could come up, just in the band. If we could all stand. There's a final bit in this passage, and uh, I, just want to, I just want to go through it really quickly, and I want us to respond, because we've heard all of this amazing stuff about how Jesus sets us free from the old way of living, and brings us into a new way of living. But something that may have confused you slightly is Paul says. Okay, Paul says in verse 29, it says, but just as he who at the time was born according to the um, so just at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul says, what does What happened at the time is Ishmael mocked Isaac and basically persecuted him. And he said, this is exactly the thing that's happening with you, Galatians. You've got people from the outside coming in and persecuting you and saying, you need to change the way you think about the gospel. And Paul says, what does the scripture say? He says, throw out the slave woman. Now what this doesn't mean, and commentators are very clear on this, it doesn't mean chuck Jewish people out. What it means is get rid... Of, in that context, it was get rid of the people who were preaching this this message. Now, that's not how we're going to apply it. The way we're going to apply it is... Actually, I think there's a deeper truth, which is some of us may have been letting, as people who are in Christ and have been set free, may have been letting the slave woman back into our lives. For some of us here, actually, the response today is to say, you know what, I, I now realise I'm a slave, and I want that freedom. I want that freedom to become everything I was created to be. And if that's you... Now I'd love to pray for you afterwards or if you want to find one of the elders or whoever brought you. We would love to t- talk to you more about Jesus. For some of us the response is going to be, I just want to praise God that, that I, was, I was that home woman and now I've spe- born children figuratively speaking. I am now set free because of the work that God's done in me. But actually for a number of us, I just feel that actually what's happening is we are letting the slave woman come into our lives. And it may well be that actually you, you have given your life to Jesus, but there's a sense in which you feel, I need to impress God. If you're here today and you think, you know what, actually my standing before God has to be defined by the way I praise in church or by the way I look, you may be letting some of the slave women in. If you're the kind of person who cannot stop working because you feel you must make up for, the, for your weaknesses, you may be letting some of the slave women into your life. If you're the kind of person who actually feels they have to act a particular way around Christians, because otherwise you won't be accepted, because that's just not what Christians do, you may be letting the slave women into your life. And if that's you, what I I want to invite you to do is just say, you know what, I'm going to chuck this particular thing out of my life. We have to do a lot of throwing out as Christians. There's a lot of throwing out in our lives that has to happen. And this is one of the things where we constantly have to say, I am not letting anything define my relationship with God apart from faith in Christ. I'm not letting that define who I am I'm not letting my particular habits my particular things that I just think I need to do in order to gain God's favour I'm not letting that influence me and so if that's you what I just encourage you to do is just throw that out and make like kind of Metaphorically, and maybe find someone and take communion with them and just say look this is what I'm struggling with I, just, I want you to stand with me I want you to pray with me I want you to help me through this because I want to break free from this I want to break free into the freedom that Christ has got for me and if that's you I just encourage you to do that but for the, what we're going to do for the rest of us is we are going to praise and just glory in the amazing gospel of freedom where Christ has set us free from slavery to sin from slavery to everything that held us and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So if we, we're just going to pray. I'm just going to pray quickly, and then we're going to praise God, and we're just going to thank him. Father, I thank you so much that we're free. <laughs> we're free, Jesus. Thank you so much, Lord God. Even just singing that, those songs earlier, and just saying, my chains fell off. Thank you, Father, that actually happened. That has actually happened. If we are in Christ, our chains have fallen off. We're free. And we can come into your presence. Father, thank you that nothing nothing apart from faith in you is what is required in order to know you, Lord God. We just thank you. And Father, I just pray for those of us who are battling with letting that particular slavery into our life. I just pray you would help us to be set free. You would help us to chuck that out of our lives. And say, you know what, no, I'm living free for Christ. I am living free for Christ. I'm not going to pretend to be something that I'm not. I'm living free for him because he has set me free. Father, we thank you. We glory in you. We love you. And we pray you would come and inhabit our praises right now. In Jesus' name.